Hey, it's Alex Pearson. This is On Point. Today on the podcast, we got July job numbers, and they're pretty encouraging. We're getting a lot of people back to work, but does it get us out of this hole? No. We have very strong economic headwinds that suggest a very long and painful recession. We'll talk to an expert about that. Guess what? You may not like the governor general. She may be on another planet, but guess what? We're going to pay for her, even if she's out of the job. You would be shocked at how much we pay for our governor generals, even once they're out of the job. So we'll talk about that. And Canada retaliates to Trump's new tariffs. Will it work? This could be much more than just a stunt, and we may pay a big price. Because we wake up to the fact that we added 419,000 jobs as businesses in the biggest uh, parts of the country start to open in phase three. And that is good news. A lot of those jobs created here in Ontario. But that uh, leaves 1.3 million still out of work. And there's absolutely no guarantee that work will come back or that this bounce is going to stay with us. And while those in charge like to boast that we're roaring back, you know, the story is that we were flatline coming into this thing. And so, okay, maybe the worst is behind us. We certainly hope it is. But that does not mean we can't and won't stave off a long and possibly very tough recession. I want to bring Philip Cross into the conversation. Senior fellow over at McDonald Laurier Institute, also spent four decades at StatsCan Statistics as a chief economic analyst. Um, Philip, good to have you here. So, you know, we, we hear good news, and I think a lot of people get very excited about hearing about all these job gains, and it is good. But it's certainly, if you can characterize what we should be seeing, what does the story tell uh, you? Well, it is good news, but you have to remember the Canadian economy literally fell off a cliff in March and April. Uh, we're not just wandering up and down the beach, uh, beach, but you know we are starting to climb back, but we're only about halfway back. Uh, we've recovered just over 50% of the jobs that we lost. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is those jobs that we regained are probably the easiest jobs that we were going to regain. These are uh, being driven by gains in industries which can easily adapt to the new rules and requirements for social distancing. Or industries like natural resources, working in a mine, working in an oil well, working in construction. I mean, these guys are working outside. It's easy to social distance. Uh, and even some of the other industries that weren't hard hit, uh, notably the public sector, a lot of uh, businesses can do their work out of home. So we've seen those industries bounce back pretty quick. The bad news is, though, that it's going to get a lot more difficult from here. The industries that we're still waiting for to recover are the industries that are having the hardest time to adapting to the new requirements for social distancing. Mm-hmm. Industries like restaurants, hotels, air travel. And, uh, you know, further down the road, you can see that some industries, you just don't see recovery at all. Uh, Industries like um, spectator sports and, you know, mass entertainment, outdoor concerts, things like that. It's hard to see those industries ever recovering before there's a vaccine. So, uh, yes, it's good news that we're no longer falling. But uh, to say the bad news is we've just picked the low-hanging fruit and the recovery is going to become a lot more difficult after this point. 
Right. And we, we had bankruptcy numbers out yesterday that are four times higher right now uh, than they were uh, before. We've heard some enormous names, you know, going out of business, be it Victoria's Secrets or Pure One Imports, you know, all the big, big, big brick and mortar retailer being hit really hard. And so we don't even know the story truly for the small businesses. And they may come back and bring as much staff right now. But again, that doesn't guarantee they're going to survive because all the government subsidy programs are starting to come to an end. Uh, and I think a lot of those businesses businesses were hoping that they could just get through the summer and, and prop themselves up. But again, th they haven't been hit yet. Yeah. No, and that's the problem. Uh, a lot of firms, particularly small firms, had a lot of debt entering into this. What government has done is, particularly for small firms, they've offered them loan extensions and uh, rent deferrals and so on. Well, that just kicks it down the road. I mean, eventually you're going to have to start making those payments uh, by the way, there's quite a difference in the attitude of this government to households and business. This government was very happy to just give money, no questions asked, to a lot of people. But to businesses, there were a lot of strings attached. Yeah. Firms didn't have any choice. I mean, you know, you either go out of business right away and just give up, or you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot and I'll hang around for a couple of months. But I'd be very concerned that a lot of firms are going to struggle and they're going to go under in the fall uh, when a lot of these bills come due. And then, you know, that's going to be a real problem for the recovery because we may have a lot of people losing their jobs just at the moment that support from the government is being cut back. I mean, remember, the government announced the end, the winding down of the CERB program, um, because basically they were running out of money. And right. if they're cutting back on CERB, it's because they, they can't afford it and they want to shift people to lower-cost programs that's lower cost for the government means lower income for households. And at the same time, all those programs that were deferring rent and mortgage payments, those all expire in September, October. So you could have a perfect storm of where uh, a lot of people are losing their jobs, a lot of small businesses go under just at the time that government is providing less support and just when a lot of bills arrive from your friend's yeah. local landlord or banker and then we could be in a very difficult situation, something we uh, in the economics profession would call a balance sheet recession. We've had an income recession in the spring. A lot of people lost their income. That's what the welfare state is there for. You have an unexpected loss of income due to unemployment, uh, medical problem, whatever. The state bails you out. That works in the short term. But balance sheet recessions, when firms lose their money, uh, lose their, uh, go under and people lose their jobs permanently, that's a lot trickier, a lot more difficult for government to address. And that's what we may see coming in the fall. Right. I mean, if you were a student, a young person, I mean, the money was being shoveled out. And that's why Mr. Trudeau's popularity went up so quickly. I mean, they didn't have to do anything for it, where you have businesses that are still trying to get some kind of assistance. That was too many loopholes, too many jumps that they didn't qualify. And then we've got the business sector like energy. You've got the airline industry. You know, the airline industry isn't allowed to fly. And at the same time, they're not getting any kind of bailout. So we have enormous sectors in this country that have been completely ignored. Um, and, and I don't don't know how long they can uh, hold on, but I, I, there are m huge numbers of jobs that are, are tied to them. Exactly. And as you say, you know, we've already seen uh, retail has been the most affected because that, that industry, particularly the brick and mortar stores, I mean, they were hemorrhaging money entering into this. So they were one of the first to, to go under. But that just may be the canary in the coal mine. As you say, there's a lot of industries out there whether it's uh, airlines or, or uh, restaurants, hotel chains. I mean, a, you know, a lot of people, 
just have trouble building, understanding how can my business work when every second table is empty? Uh, how can I provide, you know, chiropractic or physiotherapy services uh, at low cost when I have to buy all kinds of specialized medical equipment and I have to keep people, you know, I can't have people in the, on tables side by side each other. Uh, a lot of firms are struggling with the answers for that, and I'd be very concerned that, uh, as you said, the, the bankruptcy numbers are already up, but uh, we may see a, a, quite a spike in the fall. Uh, so, you know, we this government, I don't think it really has a recovery plan. I think they're basically just crossing their fingers and hoping that somebody in Oxford or somebody in the United States <laughs> develops a vaccine real quick because this could get out of hand in a hurry in Canada. Yeah, and the problem is we haven't a pre-order in for that Oxford vaccine. They're banking on uh, some other biotech, but uh, that that is a, a completely different issue. But it is the freedom that we need to get past this. I mean, we're not no, only not hearing about a recovery plan. We are praying, you know, that there's no second wave. If there is, um, you know, we, we would be in a whole lot of trouble um, because we were flat going into this thing. Um, you know, GDP was flat. You had retail sales already down, all the energy sector not doing anything. And so second wave, we can't just shut down again. No, and I don't think we will. I think the government's learned its lesson that uh, the, the shutdown was a really an overreach. In a lot of sectors, it wasn't even necessary. I mean, we've seen how quickly sectors like manufacturing, construction, even retail trade, you know, we quickly learned how if people mask and we restrict the number of people entering stores and we, we enforce social distancing, that retail trade has actually come back uh, reasonably well. Um, but there's whole sectors of the economy, especially in the services sector, uh, mm where, you know, the people are really struggling with how do we apply social distancing in a way that, that firms can still make a, a go of it. And for a lot of them, I think uh, it's going to be difficult. So I don't think second, uh, the second wave really enters into it at this point. A lot of firms are still trying to figure out how to deal with the first wave of this virus. A second wave would almost be redundant. They haven't dealt with the first wave. Yeah. So, uh, right. I wouldn't be too concerned about a second wave. I'm just concerned about, I think, a lot of industries and a lot of firms, their business model just doesn't work in these current circumstances. And if these people start to go under and people start losing jobs in the fall, that's going to be a real problem for this economy. Well, I hope, uh, I hope uh, by a miracle and some grace of God that something uh, happens. But uh, nonetheless, we could be in for a very bumpy ride. Philip, I appreciate your time on this Friday very much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That is Philip Cross with uh, McDonald Laurier Institute. He knows the numbers. And so buckle up. I think a lot of people are going to get hurt. And uh, I don't even think it starts to tell the story. Aaron Woodrick is the director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You wrote a great article on this uh, about a year ago. And I mean, if it's not obnoxious enough, uh, her press secretary stated that it is not in the public's interest for the media to be asking about her living arrangements because apparently we're just supposed to shut up and pay for it. Yeah, there's probably nothing more tone deaf right now, Alex, than uh, than saying that taxpayers don't have a right to ask questions about what their money's being spent on. If anything, you know, anyone that is on the public payroll should be volunteering to be as transparent as possible with money because I think that's the only way people are going to have any faith that their money's being spent well. And we can see when it comes to governors general, uh, it's not being spent very well. There's a bit of deja vu here. I mean, uh, most people will be familiar with um, Adrian Clarkson, mm. who had a huge reputation for just lavish spending left, right and center. 
Um, and, and now we have another governor general that does not seem to really care about how much money was wasted. I mean, in this story from CBC yesterday, I mean, they spent more than $100,000 planning to build a staircase. They didn't even build the staircase. They just spent $100,000 planning to build it uh, because she didn't like the idea of seeing maintenance workers in her line of sight. Uh, and indeed, she, she actually, her own security have to hide in a separate room because she doesn't like to see them. This is the kind of thing taxpayers are stuck spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on. Right, which may mean we get stuck with you know her therapy bills or whatever else she needs after the fact. But I mean, I don't know if she's going to stay or if she's going to go. But the bottom line, this is the practice. Um, and it can get quite expensive because you point out Adrian Clarkson. I mean, just in 2018, she uh, billed the taxpayers $1.1 million in expenses for what? Oh, to set up her speaking engagements and whatever else. Um, you know, why the taxpayer should have to pay for that, you know, and her obnoxious husband is just beyond me. Yeah, it's it's a shocking policy that really doesn't make any sense. I mean, when, you, when you're serving as governor general, sure, you know, we've got to pay for your expenses like we do for, for anybody. But why on earth are we stuck paying for your expenses after you retire? And not only that, it's unlimited and there's no receipts required. I mean, it is just an absurd policy. Um, you know, we we raised the alarm on this when Adrian Clarkson's expenses came out. It's actually over a decade. It's more than a million dollars she charged taxpayers after leaving office. Um, and this policy has got to go. There's absolutely no reason that we should be footing the bill for someone who has long left office um, and are, is not serving in any official capacity. Well, right, exactly. I mean, the fact is, once you're governor general, you can go on to make extraordinary amounts of money just based alone on the fact that you are a governor general. So it's already, you've got this advantage in life that no one else does on a pretty great job that this woman apparently hates. So, you know, it's kind of adding insult to injury, but they also get money for startup grants. Why? What is this? Yeah, I mean, it's not as if we just throw them on the street when they leave. I mean, first of all, they get a six-figure pension uh, just for serving one term. Uh, they also get money to start a charity or foundation. Um, that can be millions of dollars. It's a one-off payment, but it's still tons of money. And then, you know, they, they Adrian Clarkson had written a, a rebuttal sort of justifying her expenses, saying, well, she does a lot of volunteer work. Well, guess what, Alex? There's millions of Canadians that do volunteer work. And the thing with volunteer work is you do it without being remunerated. You don't get money for it. That's why it's volunteering. Um, and so I just thought it was very off-putting for her to suggest that because she does such good work, uh, you know, of her own accord, she deserves to get hundreds of thousands of dollars from taxpayers. There are plenty of Canadians that are happy to do that work without getting a dime for it. Well, and generally don't get a dime for it. But, I, you know, what I don't understand is why it's unlimited. So theoretically, I mean, Adrian Clarkson, who clearly doesn't feel she owes any respect to the taxpayers, I mean, these governor generals can essentially spend whatever they want. Now, I don't know about David Johnson's record, but um, he's never made it to the news as far as expenses. I mean, Adrian Clarkson's the big offender, but now we're seeing that Julie Payette also has fairly expensive tastes. I mean, the, the uh, renovation to Rideau Hall, this 175-room uh, house that she's got, is $2.4 million. Um, and then, of course, all these added expenses of, you know, um, you know, studies looking into these staircases and such. I mean, it, there, why is there no limit on it? Yeah, it's 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 really unbelievable. And let's be clear, the, the all these studies and the expenditure for Julie Piette, who's the current governor general, um, she hasn't even moved in to the house yet. <laughs> there are almost three years and she still is not even living in the residence we're paying for. It just doesn't make any sense. 
But, uh, you know, going back to the, uh, the money that they can claim after they leave office, I mean, the, the policy itself is offensive enough, Alex, but the, the fact there's no transparency and no limit, is just crazy. I mean, even if you were going to say, okay, we'll give you an allowance, surely they should have to provide some receipts. Surely there should be a cap on it. It shouldn't just be the sky's the limit. But I mean, this this policy's been around for 40 years, believe it or not. It is just mind-blowing that it's still there. They have got to fix it. I see no reason why the prime minister can't just say, you know what? We got to have some, get rid of it is the best choice. But at the bare minimum, you got to provide receipts and, and, and have a cap on what it is. Well, yeah, at least humorous, but, uh, you know, humorous, but, uh, you know, I can see why this prime minister wouldn't care one little bit, but the last prime minister, Stephen Harper, you know, it should have been a no brainer for him to change. Why didn't he change it? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. They did a lot of good stuff, especially on terms of uh, personal entitlements for members of parliament and cabinet ministers. Uh, but this was one that just, it flew under the radar for years and years. And I don't want to suggest every governor general has abused it, but boy, there are more than enough cases to show that it's possible and it happens. And that's reason enough to change. Well, you would think, I mean, because don't forget, this is only the stuff we are hearing about. There's probably a whole lot of stuff that we don't hear about, and it probably adds up to an enormous uh, amount because she gets a very, the, the governor general does get a very generous pension of 143000 a year. They do make all the speaking gigs, but again, again, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And, it, and you know what? It does a disservice to the office. I mean, right now, you, the, some people say we should get rid of the governor general altogether. Maybe that's a debate we can have about our system of government, but we need somebody in that role. Uh, they don't need to spend millions of dollars to do it. I'm sure there are many people who could serve the constitutional function of the governor general without wasting so much taxpayer money. But unfortunately for Canadian taxpayers, we've been stuck with uh, with, a, with a bunch of governors general that just really don't seem to care about wasting millions and millions of dollars on frivolous and silly things. Yeah, especially at a time when so many Canadians really are hurting. It's it's like, you know, come on, you know, read the tea leaves, read the room. Well, and that's the challenge with people that are accountable to no one. It's just yeah. another example of the danger of unaccountable people uh, spending taxpayer money is they don't have to care. Uh, she's not elected. She doesn't have to face the voters. And, uh, you know, frankly, she can just shrug her shoulders and say, what are you going to do? And I think that's just very problematic for the office generally. Indeed, it is pretty gross, but uh, yikes. We'll uh, keep our eye on this one because I have a feeling more is coming out. Aaron, appreciate it. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Alex. It's Aaron Woodrick joining us from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I mean, honestly, you go in, you get the greatest job in the world. Everything's paid for you. You end up being a loon and then you just get to enjoy and reap the benefits for the rest of your life. Make sense? No. Premier Ford not really mincing words, I can't say I'm surprised, but not mincing words, uh, striking out against Donald Trump after news that uh, he's going to level 10% tariffs on Canadian aluminum. And, you know, this is a stunt that will play well for Trump's base. He was in Ohio when he made the announcement, but at the end of the day, it's going to end up hurting his base while it hurts us. And last I checked, we had a new trade you know, agreement. Wasn't this supposed to take care of all of that? Nonetheless. The last thing we need right now is a trade war. And so the question becomes, is that what we're headed for? Let's bring in Sydney Togham Cherniak, who is uh, an expert in this with Lesage International Trade and Sales Tax Law. Good to have you, Cindy. Um, let me get your reaction, first of all, uh, with what the Premier said. Mistake or what we should be doing? Well, he's correct. It is unacceptable that the tariffs have been imposed. We're just a little over a month from the new NAFTA coming out. And 
it, it this is a political stunt in the United States for the base. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So it plays well to them, but the fact is he's actually doing it. So it's not just that he said it, it's that he's actually doing it. And he, He's already done this before, and it didn't have uh, the desired results. I mean, at the end of the day, Ohio and the United States need what we've got. We've got an abundance of it, and we're a very good trading partner, not to mention ethical, unlike China. We give good product. So why would he do this? Well, it's not just Ohio. Uh, There are U.S. manufacturers of aluminum who are supporting this measure and asking Trump to take this measure. Um, Two of the companies, one is Century Aluminum, and they're in Kentucky and South Carolina, and the other is Magnitude 7 Metals, and they're in Missouri. So these uh, are states that Trump would like to win, Um, and so he is sending a message to his base and in these states that he is um, supporting them and following up on their requests, even though the majority of companies in the aluminum industry and in the downstream industries have come out and told him that they are not in favor of the aluminum tariffs, that they're going to hurt the companies and they're going to hurt the American consumer. Right. And we're talking about the Rust Belt. This is a vital, vital area to Donald Trump. It's basically what got him the win in the last election. But his popularity is down severely. The pandemic, a big reason for that. And so I don't think he cares what he does or who he hurts. A soundbite of him kicking Canada is a very easy soundbite for him, you know, to whip up the base and get the support. But as Christopher Freeland points out, um, you know, we will stand up for ourselves. But in the end, Canadians will pay more. But so will Americans. Because, you know, they like their beer and we make and give the aluminum that makes their beer cans. Yes, but the Canadians aren't going to pay more for these aluminum tariffs. The tariffs are a 10% tariff that are going that's going to be imposed on um, the aluminum going across the border from Canada into the United States, which will then be further manufactured into the beer cans, which will be filled with the beer. So it is the American companies that are buying the the Uh, aluminum to make the beer cans, they're going to have to pay more. And then they're going to pass those costs on to the consumer so that the individuals who are buying beer in the beer store in the United States, they're going to pay more for their beer. They're going to pay more for their bicycles. They're going to pay more for their appliances and everything else that is made from aluminum. Right. Okay. And so the the idea then from the, the, um, press conference that we heard from Christopher Freeland is, you know, and we got a lot of bluster out of Ford. She walked, you know, he carries the big stick, but she walked very softly saying, you know, we'll stand up for ourselves, but we're going to consult for 30 days, which doesn't really sound like we're standing up for ourselves. I mean, it's, it's kind of like Doug Ford carries the big, big stick, but we're hitting back with a noodle, a limp noodle. But it may be they're they're working together, and uh, you know if that's the case, I'd, I'd be very happy to see that. But uh, Premier Ford could say what everyone feels, um, yeah. but Trump is looking to see what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says and what Deputy uh, Prime Minister Friedland says, mm-hmm. and it, so long as they don't come out and harm his ego, hurt his ego, um, we may not see a next stage of retaliation from the U.S. side of things. Um, It's unfortunate that we can't take quicker measures, but with retaliation in trade matters, it's a very careful line that you walk because you don't want to harm Canadians, but you want to cause some 
harm and pain in the United States so that the Americans will go to the administration and say, get rid of the tariffs. Let's get back to the table and end this trade war. Right. I mean, the last thing we can afford right now, certainly in this climate, is a trade war. Uh, We've already seen our steel and aluminum um, companies get hurt so, so very, very badly in the last time around that this happened. Uh, But Trump doesn't care. And, you know, at the best of times, he is a he's a very unpredictable guy. Um, But we also have a border that's closed right now to anything but is essential. So the first thing I think of is, okay, the last thing we want is Donald Trump to play some kind of game with the measures already in place, which will be in place, I think, for some time, Cindy. So could Trump be unpredictable enough to play games with the, with the essential uh, you know, services going across that actually keep our trade supplies fueled? He could, I mean, conceivably do a whole host of things. I think one of the big things that we're worried about is steel tariffs coming back. So if we we overreact or um, say things that will upset him, Mm. then he might come with the second shoe dropping, which would be steel tariffs. So what we need to do is to find uh, retaliation targets that don't harm Canada or Canadians that much and cause some difficulty in the United States. And so a good example would actually be um, Whirlpool appliances. Right. It's my understanding that Canada does not manufacture appliances. We import all of our appliances. Some of these appliances are manufactured in Detroit. Some of, uh, some of them are, so some of them are in Michigan and some of them are in Ohio. So swing states and Canadians who need to have appliances for their homes can buy LG manufactured in Korea. Mm-hmm. And not buy the Whirlpool product that are man- that are manufactured in the United States. And so, for Whirlpool, they would go back to the administration and say, "Well, you're making us pay more for the aluminum that we need to manufacture uh, an appliance. We're having difficulties selling in the U.S. consumer market because of these tariffs, and the Canadians are now buying from uh, from Korea." Right. All right. And we can so, do the same with bicycles as well. So bicycles have aluminum. Our industry's gone. We can buy bicycles from China and Taiwan rather than buying them from the United States. And uh, so there's a whole, whole you know, that, but that's the exercise that the federal government's going through now and determining, okay, are there goods that are manufactured in the United States, not manufactured in Canada, and we have an alternative source of supply. So you don't hurt the Canadian industry who's manufacturing it because there isn't one you don't limit the options for the canadian consumer other than uh increasing the price of the american goods and hopefully on the protectionism side which is where uh, premier ford's coming from we should not be buying u.s product we should protect our own industry and maybe protecting our own industry is either buying canadian or buying from an alternative source and just to your point on the buy local, that was his big message. Buy Canadian. We have been hurt in this pandemic. We've realized what happens when you don't manufacture yourself and you have to rely on places like China or elsewhere to get your goods. He's saying, look, buy local. And I do agree with him. We should be you know, supporting our own and making sure it, 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 they get back up on their feet. But um, will it actually have an impact? Well, I think that's a fabulous message that uh, Premier Ford has, has given to Ontario. And hopefully he'll come out with lists to help People in Ontario actually support Ontario businesses, but uh, you know maybe some businesses that we would buy from the United States that are in the you know manufactures downstream goods. Let's just say soup. We'll yeah. buy Canadian soup in Canadian-made um, soup cans, and we'll buy Canadian beer 
in Canadian-made beer cans rather than buying U.S. beer and U.S. soup. You know, Canadians could get behind that. I think they could, actually, when it comes to beer, for sure. All right, Cindy, I wanted to get your perspective on this because this is your expertise and you hear from these industries in particular. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll have you back. I wish you a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alex. That's the podcast for today, and you can hear On Point. Come to us Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. We'll keep you entertained here on Global News Radio. I'm Alex Pearson. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.